In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Please be seated. Would you hear the phrase, the good old days? What time period comes to mind? Now, I'm betting if we ask everybody in this room what, what, what years were the, the good old days for you, we'd get quite a collection of different dates. Maybe it was the 40s or the 50s, the 60s or the 70s, the 80s or the 90s. Maybe it was when you were a kid, sitting out in a summer day listening to a ball game on the radio. Maybe it was a Christmas day, the fire roaring in the fireplace, snow outside, and family all around. For others, I found it's college or their time in the service. Maybe it was when you were newlyweds or the kids were a certain age. We like to focus on those happy times, or at least the remembrance of those happy events that happened during them. But have you ever been talking with some relatives that are older than you about the good old days when you were a kid? If you talk long enough, you're going to learn that those summers that you enjoyed, those Christmases with all the presents, your parents, aunts, uncles, your grandparents have a slightly different memory of those times. They remember the happiness too, but they'll also tell you about, well, what you didn't know was this, all the hard work, all the sacrifices, all the hardships. When you ask them what the good old days were, they might have a completely different answer. It may have been when they were kids. Everybody has a slightly different opinion on what were the good old days. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Now, earlier in Lent, we heard about God's people being freed from slavery, saying that they would rather be back on the Nile eating leeks and onions than to be free in the wilderness eating manna and relying on God. They were remembering the good old days. Forgetting also in those good old days, they'd also been crying out for freedom. Remember what God told Moses in Exodus 3 when he called him. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. And here we are, centuries after Moses, in a time of judgment, when God's people were scattered across empires. And God is reminding his people, it was he who made a way in the sea, a path through the water who delivered them from slavery. Isaiah writes, Do not remember the former things, or consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God is talking to his people, a people who are remembering the good old days. And for them the good old days were when they were still in sin, before the exile. They were still in rebellion to God. And God is reminding them of the good old days. Well, all he'll say about them is they're old. They're in the past. From God's perspective, they were the days when his people were breaking his heart. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drinks to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, so they may declare my praise. God is reminding them that in the desert, he provided for the forebearers every step of the way. Remember what we read a couple of weeks ago. Paul said the church, told the church in Corinth that the water in the desert 
That water was Christ. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, then we were like those who dream. But God was always going to take care of his people. He promised Abraham, he promised Moses, he promised David and others along the way that he would have a people that he would take care of and redeem. But when redemption finally comes, God's people are in a daze. They don't understand what's happening. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, how is that for an introduction to a story? This is Lazarus, the guy I just raised from the dead. How would you like to go around being introduced like that? Jesus heads back to Bethany. And John is reminding us that in chapter 11, Lazarus is sick and had died. And Jesus came, and after he wept, he brought him back to life. And the results of that were that his enemies redoubled their efforts to arrest him and get him out of the way. John had mentioned previously that Bethany is about two miles from Jerusalem. And the leaders there, they're looking for Jesus. They know he'll be in Jerusalem for the Passover. He's always in Jerusalem for the Passover. And Jesus comes into town, gets back to Bethany, and wants to keep a low profile because it's not yet his time. It's not his time yet to be arrested. And what do his dear friends do? They throw a big party in his honor. That's the way to keep a low profile. But it's a very human response. When you have a friend who's in town, much less a friend who saved your life, what do you do? You invite them out to dinner. You throw a party. You're happy to see them. And here, Mary, in the midst of all this, takes the most expensive perfume of the day. Now, I've seen commentators talk about spikenard, and they use terms like, ah, it was the Cadillac of perfumes. It was the Tiffany, the Rolex, the gold standard. While everyone is taking their ease, Mary, the same Mary who much the frustration of her sister had sat at Jesus' feet, she pours out this perfume worth a whole year's wages and anoints his feet. And then, even more shockingly, she pulls her hair out starts anointing it with his, his feet with her hair. And Judas objects. Hey, Jesus, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. Think about how much good we could do with a whole year's wages. Now, John gives us a commentary as to Judas's actual motives. But when Judas says this, if you don't know Judas, if you don't know the situation, all of that sounds reasonable. Why shouldn't we help the poor more, Jesus? The underlying complaint to those listening is, listen, we could have helped a lot more people with that money rather than kind of waste it on you. And if you're at the party with Jesus and Lazarus and the apostles, and you hear hear Judas say this, it all makes sense. Now remember a few weeks ago on the first Sunday in Lent, we read about Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days, and at the end of those days he was tempted by the devil. And whenever the devil tempted him, Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy. Here, Jesus looks at Judas and says, Listen, leave her alone. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't have me for much longer. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 15.11 to Judas. 15.11 reads, The poor will never cease to be in the land. Judas, I'm going to quote a little Deuteronomy to you. The poor you'll always have 
but you won't always have me. And what the apostles and Lazarus, Mary and Martha, and the other partygoers didn't know is that, is that the next day, the very next morning, would be what we now call Palm Sunday. Jesus would ride from Bethany into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey with everyone waving their palm branches. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad indeed. Paul, writing some years later, tells the Philippians, If anyone has a reason to be confident in the flesh, it is I. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's writing to what many believe is the first church in Europe a church in Greece, in Philippi, a church that Paul and Silas and his companions helped to plant two decades after Mary anointed Jesus' feet, a town that didn't have enough Jewish men living there to have their own synagogue. He tells them, listen, under the old ways I've told you about, I was an exemplar. You're not going to find a better person than I was. I was born to the right family. I went to the right schools and had the right training." And I was zealous. I had every advantage. But God, like he told Isaiah so many years ago, was doing a new thing. Yet whatever gains I had, these I've come to regard as lost because of Christ. Why? Because there's no longer any difference between Jew and Greek. God had sent Jesus to reconcile everyone to him. It took the church a little while to realize that when he said everyone, he meant everyone. And because of that unwarranted grace, God's love for all of us, those advantages Paul had because of his background, because of his training, because of his zeal, they meant nothing. He doesn't look at it as if he's given up something, like they did in Isaiah's day. God, look what I had. Or in Moses' day, thanks for getting me out of slavery, God, but really, leeks and onions, much better than what we're eating here in the desert. Can't I go back to slavery? No, Paul says that what he had was rubbish, trash because of Christ. Paul writes to him that his own righteousness brought him nothing. But Christ brings everything. Christ brings everything, including the resurrection. And Paul had not earned it on his own. But he keeps pressing onward. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But this one thing I do... Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the watercourses of the Negev. Those who sowed with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying the seed, will come again with joy, shouldering their sheaves. The psalmist, Isaiah, Moses, Paul, they're not saying to forget the past. The people of God throughout the Bible are also building monuments. They're putting remembrances up to the great things God has done. But we have to remember the tears and the weeping and the other things that go with that joy. The pain is not the purpose. We're not simply called to suffer for Jesus for its own sake. But it's important to remember the kingdom of God is not fair. It's not a matter of us getting the scales to balance or some cosmic game of karma. And we should thank God that we do not get what we deserve. Instead, 
God doesn't look at our status, who we are, where we're born. He reconciles us to him. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then because of that reconciliation, we are called to the ministry of reconciliation to bring others into the family of God. But we must keep pressing on toward the goal of the high calling Christ Jesus, step by step and day by day, no matter what's in our path. Amen. Thank you.